Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including a roundtable on April 15th on the future of the voice of America. Coming up on the show today, Christina Groger, Professor of History at Lake Forest College and author of the new book, The Education Trap, Schools and the Remaking of Inequality in Boston. Uh, Tina, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, What is The Education Trap? (laughs) Um, So... My my take it's a it's a book of history, but with some policy implications for the present. And I think the the education trap um, refers to the way that uh, policymakers and a long history of commentators, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum, have seen education as the best way to solve a wide range of social problems, but especially the problem of social inequality. And um, as I argue in the book, I think this focus on education um, can can trap policymakers into a, a pretty narrow framework and often obscure some of the larger factors that shape inequality, in particular, the the balance of power between workers and employers um, and larger questions of how the labor market is structured. So um, education can be sort of a useful tool. Um, you know, it, per- it puts more of the burden on individuals to improve their own skills and improve themselves as opposed to other, what I argue, uh, a lot of broader factors of, of the political economy at large that shape the history of social inequality. Yeah, and it's one of the things that you say right in the very first line of the book, that this is very often a way as as being seen to um, make social inequality, to eradicate those things. You quote Horace Mann, that education mm-hmm. is the great equaliser in the United States. You quote, you quote Thomas Piketty uh, saying that, um, that, this, that education is the best way to reduce inequality too. So this is an idea which has been around for a long time. Yeah, um, and I think that there are different versions of this idea that have changed since the 19th century. Um, but the the dominant framework today, I think, is really the the kind of the human capital model that comes out of the field of economics um, that I think is is driving a lot of a lot of policy discussions um, and basically with with the idea that compensation in the workplace kind of reflects one's level of skills and often that means education. Um, So if we can just increase access to education, then more people will be able to compete for higher paying jobs and that is going to reduce inequality. Um, And I think there's just on the face of it, there's that's a that's a very kind of oversimplified way I think of thinking about the relationship between education and the economy. And today, for instance, in the United States, you know, although the U.S. has one of the highest levels of educational access in the world, we also have extremely high levels of inequality. So um, I kind of take that as a starting point, but then 
look back at an earlier time period in the early 20th century, when we also see very high levels of inequality and high levels of educational spending um, to understand, you know, well, how can this be? How can we, how can both of these things be true at the same time? Yeah, it's one of the really interesting things, uh, it seems to me, about the book. And you keep returning to this central paradox, which is at the heart of it, that education helps to overcome inequality while also entrenching inequality. Yeah, um, I think it, it, you know, it it's, there's not... Um, it's a bit more complicated, you know, than a simple, you know, either education is uh, a progressive force for equalizing society, or I think there's some other approaches in in educational history and um, and scholarship that that see it as sort of all about, um, you know, top down control of workers or or of individuals. Um, and I think we really have to look at kind of different different sectors of work and how education and different types of schools uh, related to different parts of the economy. Um, and what I what I find in, in the period that that I'm looking at is that for particularly for a growing kind of a growing sector of white collar work. Uh, so, you know, positions as clerks and secretaries uh, and accountants and bookkeepers, these are these are jobs that are growing in with the rise of a new corporate economy in the early 20th century. And schools are actually very good at providing access to these types of jobs, um, especially for white women um, and, and second generation immigrants. So there is really a material basis to the idea that schools provide access to social mobility, that, that they can, that, that they offer us a, a panacea of sorts, um, or access into better paying jobs. But I also show how that's just one part of a wide range of changes in this time period and how education is also simultaneously being used by employers to try to avoid uh, craft worker unions and, and sort of undercut the power of craft unions. And at, the, at higher levels of education in private universities, uh, economic elites and professional elites can really use uh, access to higher education and college degrees as a way of controlling sort of access into the most high paying jobs in the economy and actually concentrating their power rather than distributing it to a broader population. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the themes that again that you developed throughout the book that uh, it is about the actual value of education. Do too many people go to university paying huge sums of money for credentials that you seem to imply that they don't really need? Um, that, that perhaps the education industry uh, has convinced everyone is somehow a badge of quality and that often leads uh, leaves people with considerable debts to pay. Yeah, I think I am um, trying to poke some holes in <laughs> in the notion that um, that higher education, well, one that that you know that uh, that higher education and and expanding access to education that that is going to solve inequality because I think we can see how you know for for every stage. Um, of the credentialed ladder, you know, from high school degree to then a college degree to maybe now a master's or a professional degree, um, 
uh, elites are very good at kind of creating new barriers to entry. So we get what's what's been called a credentials race, where it's, you know, at every level, you just you now need even more education to access the highest paying jobs. So uh, we may simply be driving that process forward by a folk, you know, too much of a focus on education. Um, And I think we if we also look at the the substance of what um, so I, I use the correspondence between employers and university officials um, in placement offices, which helped college graduates at this time, and, and they still exist in most universities, um, help them access jobs. And what I find is that, you know, skill and talent and merit um, in, in, in academic subjects mattered a bit, you know, for access to these jobs. But there are lots of other things that also employers were looking for that were their own kind of racial uh, preferences and prejudices um, or other traits, personality, you know, extracurricular activities. And these were, you know, become coded as academic merit. But I think there's when we really when we sort of dig down into what is being selected for, it often just looks like a a way of reproducing um, elites and and the demographics of sort of an older traditional elite through now through these new educational institutions. What about the uh, trade education uh, that you talk about uh, in the book? Mm. I mean, those create elites as well, don't they? What how how does that compare uh, with the the structure, for example, within uh, university education? Yeah, so I think um you know when when we talk about vocational education today um i think there's the first thing that comes to mind is trade education or industrial education um and i argue that that was historically was one of the least successful forms of vocational education if if we if we define vocational education as sort of creating a a pathway into a a, a well-paying job um so in this period, there was employers of um, industrial workers and craft workers are really interested in trying to promote new kinds of trade education. And I argue that one of the main reasons is because at this time, the power of craft unions really depends on their control of the apprenticeship process. And um, it's you know a long process, a, a heavy investment um craft unions set minimum wages for apprentices so there's a lot of reasons why employers are eager to get around some of these regulations um and also try to limit the power that craft unions have so if employers can find a way of training their workers in other institutions that are disconnected from unions then that offers kind of a cheaper um, possibility for them. And they try to promote private trade schools, um, industrial education in the public sector. But I think because craft workers are some of the few groups of workers that have some real organized power in this period, they're, they're able to limit the success of these programs. And in some cases, even like shut down these schools. So that never becomes a really a successful alternative 
to apprenticeship training. And I we see this even today where some of the few jobs where apprenticeships still exist, like in the building trades, those are that reflects, I think, the 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 power of craft worker unions in some fields to maintain control of the training process. Yeah, and it's a, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because uh, in the period that you're looking at, at the beginning of the 20th century, some of those apprenticeships would have taken seven, eight years, the same mm-hmm. amount of time that it would take someone to train as a doctor. Uh, and just in the same way as uh, somebody couldn't just stick a, a sign up on their door saying doctor without the training, uh, why should someone be able to say that they are, for example, a printer? Uh, if they haven't been through the uh, through the seven year apprenticeship to uh, produce and print newspapers. Yeah, I think I think that's um, that's very much the case that that this is a way of you know th- there are um, a lot of parallels I think between the skilled trades and emerging um, professions and even you know attempts to create new forms of training either on the job or in in schools um and in in but we can sort of understand the role of professional associations in a somewhat similar way um as as craft unions as being a, about trying to control access to a um to a scarce set of resources and and skills kind of at the top one of the things that comes through very clearly uh, in the book is the the link between the immigrant experience and education. You have some um, uh, descriptions of incredible physical backbreaking labour uh, in the book, and many of those workers wanted something different for their children uh, and saw mm-hmm. education as a passport to another life. And that was something that was particularly true uh, in Boston uh, with the uh, Irish immigrants uh, who. Came came to the to the city in the 19th century. Yeah, um so the the I argue that you know there's there are a lot of efforts to provide adult immigrants who are often working in low wage jobs right in kind of manual labor or domestic service um there are attempts to offer these kinds of workers New, new forms of education, some sort of vocational training for low-wage work, like schools of housekeeping that progressive reformers think will um, think will improve working conditions for domestic workers, um, or pro, you know programs like English language learning, citizenship classes, Americanization classes, and I argue that I think you know there's the schools that are intended for low-wage workers to enter or to to reform low-wage work itself are not very successful because, you know, a, a domestic worker is, doesn't want to spend time training to become a, a better domestic worker. Like, if, if they have time to spend in school, they would want to receive another kind of training. Um, and immig- adult immigrants do take advantage of things like English language classes and naturalization classes, but Overall, those kinds of educational programs for immigrants are not especially successful. Um, whereas I think for their children um, who grow up in, in Boston and can attend public primary school and then high school, um, this is this is one of the major populations that um, that are entering 
new kinds of white collar jobs that that high schools really provide access into. So for the children of immigrants, I think that's where we see the really the 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 power of of schools as a form of social mobility because of the way that it's connected to this segment of the of the workforce that's expanding in this period that is absorbing large numbers of children of immigrants uh, in this time. And that it's particularly good for fast-tracking those who are able to excel academically. Um, It's not quite in your period, but uh, Theodore White, for example, talks about uh, the experience uh, uh, who wrote um, The Making of the President uh, in 1960. Um, He writes about the experience of going going to the Boston Latin School, then going to Harvard, coming from this kind of very tough working class background and it being his his way into the, the world of the elites. And there, there are many stories in Boston uh, like that, I suppose, most famously uh, of all the Kennedys themselves. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think um, there are definite like success stories even into the elite. I mean, I think most most of the children of immigrants are, this is, I, I argue, argue that, that white collar work also kind of undergoes a transformation. So it used to be a kind of very exclusive uh, occupation, you know, usually something like a merchant's apprentice that was mostly men. And as it expands, you also see it as, especially as more women enter white collar work, you see this kind of differentiation. So the vast majority of jobs become what we would call now pink collar work, um, a, a kind of feminized labor um, at the bottom of, you know, clerks and secretaries. And then a, a few, um, a smaller number of jobs at the top in kind of in management positions or in more elite positions. So I think, um, I think there is, there are, there are cases where we do see, you know, children of immigrants um, accessing higher education and entering the elite. Um, and that, that provides, you know, more inspiration and, and lends more credence to this idea of education as social mobility. Um, even while the vast majority of, of this population are kind of staying in more lower level, like sort of lower middle class jobs in this in the new economy. Yeah. And it's, as you say, many of those jobs for for women and the way that women were treated in the workplace would would not be acceptable today. But you make a quite a strong case in the book that actually uh, for women in the period, education leads to clerical jobs, leads to greater financial independence. So actually, this is mm-hmm. something which is important for um, gender mobility mobility, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. for women in the workplace. Yeah, no, and this is kind of one of the interesting, again, like complicated <laughs> um, historical realities that I think the these jobs really did represent, um, you know, preferable employment. They represent new opportunities that women did not have in the 19th century, where, you know, some of the, the only jobs um, were most most women were in domestic service or and some were in factory work but white collar jobs um really represent a, an important opportunity for women entering the labor force and then also social mobility that's either their own access to um you know to to financial independence or 
very often um, social mobility through marriage. Um, so marrying other, either their co-workers. Um, this is one of the few kind of mixed mixed gender spaces where men and women aren't kind of completely segregated in the labor market. So I think on the one hand, we can see it from the perspective of these women, this is a real opportunity. Um, at the same time, we can see how from the perspective of employers, you know, they pay women much less than men. It's, it's a much cheaper workforce for them. Um, it's a workforce that has far less power than uh, unionized craft workers um, who in this time period are almost exclusively men. So um, so both of these, you know, we can we have to hold both of these ideas in our minds at the same time. What about race in Boston? Later on, obviously, the city becomes uh, a centre for busing and that in itself uh, becomes quite a controversial uh, topic within the city. Um, uh, how good do you think that was for combating social inequality and, and how does it compare to the period that you're looking at in the book? Yeah, well, so in before 1940, the African-American population in Boston is very small. It, it gets up to about 3% of the population. So that's something that really changes in Boston in the second half of the 20th century. And in the period that I'm looking at, uh, are, there, are, there are certain neighborhoods where most African-Americans live, but even in those neighborhoods, the African-American population is max, you know, 30 or 40 percent so that schools in, you know, in, in neighborhood schools, um, there there are no we don't see the sort of extreme segregation that we do in later periods that um, where where so in, in this period, African-Americans are attending schools that are majority white or at least would be kind of a range of um would be more racially mixed and integrated. Um, so that's, I mean, that's an important difference and I think shapes, you know, the dynamics. Um, and I, but what I, what we do see in this period is, and what I didn't know going into the project was actually that African-Americans have some of the highest levels of educational attainment and are even, are going to school um, in higher rates than the children than than low than white um, children from working class backgrounds um, and European immigrant children as well, um, and yet at the same time, even though they're getting higher levels of education, they are in the labor market. They are almost completely excluded from white collar jobs, from better paying jobs, and are really kind of relegated to the service sector, other manual labor jobs. And I think in for for me and my and my argument in the book, the case of African Americans is really important because it shows very clearly that, you know, just because some cohorts have access to education and can you can translate that into a better job, that did not describe the experience of everyone. And more education didn't didn't automatically lead to or couldn't overcome job discrimination or other kind of structural inequalities in the labour market. And presumably that's what you mean when when you say at one stage in the book about how the academy itself plays a central role in upholding, perpetuating the ideology of meritocracy, that what you've just given there is an example of merit which goes unrewarded. 
Yes. No, exactly. Um, that, that we can see all kind in practice, there are many, um, many cases where a sort of equation of skill or merit uh, of some sort, um, and access to jobs or kind of higher compensation in the labor market, that just doesn't happen in, in practice. I wonder what you feel now, having done all of this work on the uh, the this earlier period. At uh, one stage, uh, you say in the book that you know, in our new gilded age, we can look back to the first gilded age over a century ago for insight. Um, I wonder if what insights you feel you have in terms of the the public private divide that uh, that public school education uh, is highly prized in the United States. Uh, it seems to me, and yet in many ways uh, is also chronically underfunded. Um, do you think that there should be more emphasis on public education, or do you think that this is a broader question and it's about education more generally? Um, so I think there are, if we're, yes, there, I think there are some lessons in the realm of education that we can draw from this time period. Um, so one of the stories that that I tell in um, in looking at the history of white collar work and training institutions for white collar work is how at first um, there aren't very, the, the public sector is not providing new kinds of training for white collar jobs in the late 19th century very effectively. So the first schools on the scene are proprietary or private, um, what are called commercial or business colleges, um, even though they're they're really more like high schools. And this these are essentially the the for profit colleges of their day. And although they you know they're they're providing important services that are not being provided by the public sector, there's also a wide opportunity for you know, exploitation, um, for charge overcharging students. And we, I, I argue that we can actually understand the rise of public high schools in part as a response to this sector. Um, and there's widespread support from uh, employers to, to working class families that say, you know, this should be a service that's, th these should be kinds of training that are provided freely um, that we should have access to as a public good. And that leads to the expansion of public high schools. And so I think there is definitely a lesson in thinking about the role, although small, still, still substantial role of for-profit colleges in the present. Um, and I think, you know, the, the best, the best way to limit the exploitative practices of the for-profit sector in the present would be not not through kind of extensive regulation, although that can help, but essentially we have to offer students some free alternatives. And I think um, I think to that extent, public education um, and investment in public education as a as a public good is is an important demand. Um, and similarly, the ways that that we can see the role of private institutions uh, in Boston throughout this period, private institutions were kind of the chief obstacles to creating a public university, even though that was uh, a chief demand of working class families and organized labor kind of throughout the 20th century. But they're very effective in, in limiting a public uh, university because they see that as competition, right? Um, 
And so I think uh, in order to at least address the problem of educational inequality, it is really important to um, see public education as or see education as a public good that that we should be investing in. I'll just add to that that I think, although you know, I, I think you know, uh, education should be free and students shouldn't have to go into debt to get education. I think um, I also want to come back to the idea that education alone will not um, solve some of you know the problem of social inequality on a broader scale for some of the reasons that that I've mentioned before but it, it don't you think that it's also about access that if for example public schools were world-class institutions that elites wanted to send their own children to that a lot of these social inequalities would be broken down mm. yes although I think what what's interesting, about sort of the evolution of, well, the the landscape of both public and private institutions is how it often seems that um, that public institutions end up catering to some of the most marginalized populations, working class populations, and private institutions can often become more exclusive, more elite, um, and and are are effective at kind of reproducing wealth, um, and I and and this is partially too because of the ways that private institutions, and we see this very strongly in Boston, where private institutions were some of the oldest institutions. They could really shape the landscape of education in their favor, um, and so it was only when institutions that weren't really competing with them that catered to kind of a a different demographic of students um, that they they sort of allowed that to happen. But as soon as there are institutions such as, you know, the, the public high school, as soon as there are, as soon as public high school becomes something that is a mass institution and is no longer a kind of exclusive experience, I think then we see, we see these reactions and ways of creating new institutions or new tracks within institutions to try to preserve some of that power. Um, yeah. I was, I, was, I was really interested, actually, when I was reading the book, that just at the, at the end of the period that you're covering, um, it's where universities and schools are trying to develop new ways to uh, broaden the, uh, the constituencies who attend those places. And so, for example, it's when you start to see the development of standardised testing for entries to universities. We're coming to the end of that process now that um, the... Uh, the standardized testing uh, pretty clearly seems to be on the way out. I wonder whether you think that uh, that is likely to entrench the kind of social inequality uh, that you've been writing about, or whether there is a new way to uh, reduce that kind of social inequality um, and to get over, get round the kind of things that you've been talking about in the book. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's interesting to see the see the debates about standardized testing and whether or not that I, I think there's there's plenty of evidence that that is um, that's not a great way right to measure academic merit whatever you know whatever however we want to define that um, and it's tricky because you know other things like 
college essays or interviews um, also have a lot of the same problems. Um, so I think I think the, the for at least for in our discussion of educational institutions um, specifically, I think there it's going to be important to try to provide other forms of access um, that don't rely on these metrics that we can we can point to ways that they can sort of reproduce some of the the same inequalities in and through the educational system. Uh, what exactly that would look like, um, I'm not totally sure, although I think there are some some more you know experiments with allowing, say, um, students from the top of their class, no matter what you know the specifics, their specific, test scores are access to higher educational institutions um, or, or policies like that that try to make it more about um, opening up opportunities no matter where, where exactly you started from um, into the educational system. Um, at the same time, I think if, if we're trying to think about social inequality kind of beyond schools, then I think the the real question is going to be whether or not there are well-paying jobs for students to enter after they leave school. And I think to address that whole side of the problem, um, that's going to take other kinds of labor reforms um, or, you know, increasing the um, the power of workers to kind of shape working conditions and wages. Um, we can't really solve that problem through the educational system. Yeah, I was I was quite struck when I got to the end of the book that uh, you still seem to be quite hopeful about education and the way in which it can be uh, re repurposed to break down the kind of social inequality uh, that you've been writing about. Because in many ways, the story that you've told is so familiar to the what to the experience that we have today. Uh, you might well be excused for. Uh, simply pulling your hair out in despair. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm. Uh, it's there. There are still so many um, ideas and and hopes, and you know, what what education could be um, is still inspiring. And I think um, I I wouldn't want to give up on on sort of a different kind of education um, that didn't have to. Or for students that, you know, they didn't have to see education as sort of just their only ticket to accessing a job. Um, I think if if we could sort of address the the question of of economic livelihood um, outside of the school system, that would actually open up the educational system for all kinds of other things that might be you know, more valuable or that, that we might want <clears throat> to spend some time on. Um, and so... I think there's there's that that I don't want to give up on on some of the ideals that have in long also inspired educational practice and pedagogy. Um, but I also and I think there's different we can conceive of education in different ways that also that that might help us imagine how education could be more transformative. And part of that is, I think, thinking about the practice of um we've seen kind of a rise in labor activism within school, uh, within schools, um, among teachers um, who are often very connected to their communities and their students. Um, 
who are pushing kind of for public investment in in their not just their schools, but also in their communities. And that's not kind of a formal curriculum um, in education in that way, but it is a sort of political education um, or an organizing campaign. And I see those as important forms of education as well that that are are ways that students can learn, you know, what does it mean to um, to sort of advocate for oneself or to kind of empower um, working class people in an extremely unequal uh, society or an unequal political system. So the book is The Education Trap, Schools and the Remaking of Inequality in Boston. It's written by my guest, Christina Groger, and published by Harvard University Press. Uh, But for now, Tina, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.